Well, this is an auspicious start to the off-season podcasting season for the Fear the Fro podcast. I taped this, and in the middle of it, news changed. The Chris Depps Porzingis deal sending him to the Celtics, which earlier was reported to be Brogdon going to the Clippers and the 30th pick and Amir Coffey and Marcus Morris going to the Wizards. That all blew up. And during the taping of this podcast, a new deal was announced, one which still sends Porzingis to the Celtics, but in addition to him, they also obtained the 25th overall selection tonight from the Memphis Grizzlies and the Warriors' top four protected first-round pick in 2024 just for sending Marcus Smart to the Grizzlies. Now, Tyus Jones of the Grizzlies, he lands on the Wizards, along with Danilo Gallinari and Mike Mascala. If I didn't like the first iteration of the Porzingis trade because the Celtics got markedly better. Now, they hold on to Malcolm Brogdon. They get back two first-round picks, and they simply sent the 35th pick in the draft tonight to Washington. So they're net one much better pick, at least 10 spots higher, because they have the 25th overall selection tonight. This is not good news. They got the best player, and they got picks. Honestly, I don't know what the fuck the Grizzlies are thinking. I would take Tyus Jones straight up over Marcus Smart, or at least debatably, I would. When you consider they had to give up two first-round picks, one of which, while I get that the Warriors should be good, it's still, it's only top four protected. You're giving up two first-round picks in the next two years and Tyus Jones to get Marcus Smart, who seems to be heading down the wrong trajectory as a player. I don't, like I said, don't know if I would have even done it straight up. So I don't get it for the Grizzlies. I like it more for the Wizards. Yes, it's not the 30th pick. It's the 35th. But Tyus Jones, a far superior player to Marcus Morris on an expiring. They may be able to flip Tyus Jones for some sort of decent asset, even though this will be the final year of his contract. He's much younger. He's only 27 as opposed to Mook, who is, what, 33? So better for the Wizards. Ridiculous for the Grizzlies. Way better for the Celtics. But let's not delay the NBA draft pod, we can't undo what just happened for the Celtics. So let's focus on the Cavs. NBA draft day is here. He's the best prospect since LeBron James. He has a combination of things that we have never seen. The guy is going to change the geometry of the game. He has the chance to be one of the best, one of the best to ever play this game. The trades have begun. They have now given away Porzingis. They get nothing back. The rumors are flying. The chances Zion Williamson is traded. Is Damian Lillard in play? And the Fear the Fro podcast returns with a draft day special. You're not special yet. You're just like everybody else. Rude, Colin. It is I, Bob Schmidt, Fear the Fro podcast host. We're back. The offseason's on. Today's the day. I couldn't wait any longer. I really should have rolled out a pod before this, but in my mind, the beginning of the offseason really commences a few days prior to the NBA draft as we find out which players pick up options, which players become free agents. Certainly, a lot of that in the last few days. You had Draymond Green opting out, expected to return to the Warriors on some sort of longer extension, probably at a smaller average annual value. But the first big domino really dropped with the trade of Chris Paul for Bradley Beal and his massive contract, which will have three guys on the Phoenix Suns next season making in excess of $50 million. Then another domino falls today as Chris Stapps Porzingis traded to an Eastern Conference foe of the Cleveland Cavaliers, 
the Boston Celtics, who, in order to make that maneuver happen, will ship Danilo Gallinari to the Washington Wizards, will ship Malcolm Brogdon to the L.A. Clippers, and in return from the Clippers will be the Amir Coffey, the 30th pick in today's draft, and Marcus Morris, one of my most loathed players, but an expiring contract, even if he has regressed to the trash that he was on the inside, also on the outside. So he and Gallinari make the money work, and now Boston is in a situation where they add an elite big man, a much better defensive big man. Now, they've had spacing shooters. Al Horford, a very capable three-point shooter, a man who knocked down six against us earlier this season. And, of course, Grant Williams, the other man who, albeit a free-throw line choke artist, did knock down four of his five three-point looks in that game against the Cavaliers that he failed to close. So two guys who already spaced it, but now you add Zinger, who can do a lot more than just knock down three-point shots. Now, it is nice that they lost Brogdon. I would suspect that the Celtics will not retain Grant Williams, even though they have his restricted free agency rights. You have to think the acquisition of a $35 million player, $36 million player in Chris Tapps might cause them to just not match any reasonably large offer for Grant Williams. So I guess we'll see what will happen in free agency because the money is ticking upward. It will also, another narrative that goes along with the Wizards is what will come of Kyle Kuzma? I think a bit of a pipe dream for many Cavalier fans, myself included, as, oh, well, this guy would be ideal if he landed here, but never a guy that was realistic in the sense that he opted out of a $13 million deal and as one of the younger and more prolific free agent options in what is a very weak free agent crop, he reportedly is seeking a deal upwards of $30 million. Now, do I think he'll hit that point? No, but I do not believe he will come in below $20 million a season. But this is more free agency talk, and my whole impetus in putting this podcast out here today was to make sure, for lack of a better way to describe it, that I got my thoughts on wax about the NBA draft, what I want to see, what I expect to see. So let's discuss that. First, the Cavaliers as it sits now. They have been in the news over a lot of things. Will they trade up into the first round? I've heard reports that they're interested in the Phoenix Suns pick, which sits at 23. That would be extremely high for them to trade up, and that is why I'm very skeptical of it happening because I simply don't think we have the firepower. There have been iterations discussed that would send Dean Wade and Osman to the Portland Trailblazers for 23 and Nasir Little. Now, I personally uh, don't see really the appeal there if I'm the Portland Trailblazers. Yes, they have the third overall pick. They do have multiple assets. They want to put more talent around Damian Lillard. But I think if we're being fair, you have to question, will they get a substantially more talented end of this trade by adding Osman and Wade versus just keeping Little and hoping somebody pretty solid falls to them with the 23rd overall pick? I would say 50-50 at best. And truthfully, I would prefer the guy with four years of rookie control if I'm in their shoes. They have three picks in this draft. They have the third overall pick, which, as we know, is being discussed in plenty of deal iterations. Zion Williamson, maybe Pascal Siakam, Bam Adebayo, which I don't put any stock into that. I don't know why people are talking about Adebayo like he would be being shopped. They just made the finals. He's super young. 
he was perhaps the most consistent player on the Heat in those finals while facing the finals MVP and the rightful league MVP. Not the one who won it, but the one who should have. So the notion that the Heat are taking calls on Bam Adebayo from the Blazers seems ridiculous. Just because Dame likes him is ridiculous. The third pick, the 23rd pick, the 43rd pick, could I see them moving the 23rd or the 43rd? Absolutely. There are lots of teams with multiple picks. Let's hit a few of them here. The Charlotte Hornets. They have the second pick, the 27th pick, the 34th pick, the 39th pick, and pick number 41. There are four of those picks I would be interested in moving up to if I were the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, I'm not, I don't make this distinction that, oh, I need a first round pick. Quite frankly, Early second is plenty high for me to be right in the range of a ton of prospects I'm interested in, and it's also much cheaper. Once you throw the word first-round draft pick on it, it almost always involves having to move a future first-round draft pick to do it, and I don't think that's necessary. Not even possible here, also. I just don't want to be in the situation where the Cavaliers watch three, four, five prospects they all like get picked between picks 35 and 49, and then they're stuck taking somebody that they really had no interest in because there's no other alternative. But there are a lot of teams that are realistic possibilities to discuss on this draft day. We know the Hornets are one of them with five picks because they're not coming away with five rookies. They already suck. They are a team to watch. The Pacers, we saw them do a deal with the Denver Nuggets on Wednesday in which the Nuggets acquired a late first and an early second. They gave a future first and the 40th overall pick. But still... The Pacers come away with pick 7, pick 26, pick 40, and pick 55. Maybe we hit pick 26, the guys they wanted have all gone off the board, and they shop that pick. They're not going to draft four guys. Multiple teams control three picks in this draft. The Denver Nuggets, as we know, anticipating perhaps losing Bruce Brown, made that trade, and now they come away with 29, 32, and 37. That is a team that scares me because they're likely to be looking at guys ready to contribute right now, which I think is sort of more of my focus with the Cavs. I don't want super raw people, and we'll get into the specific prospects, but I would hope we can add people who are ready to fill holes in the rotation right now because if we're being fair, our bench left something to be desired for most of the season and for much of this playoff run that was very short, only five games. Now, the Kings, 24th, 38th, 54th. We don't have to worry about 54. We're not moving downwards, but perhaps we could leap up to 38. Lots of avenues. So it is a good year to anticipate at least some sort of marginal jump up. Do I think it will be all the way to 23? I think that's rather unlikely, but bedfellows, as it were, with the Utah Jazz, we have done plenty of dealing, plenty of trading with them. They have the ninth pick, the 16th pick, and the 28th pick. Maybe 28. I am not going to pour a bunch of time into late first-round prospects because we may not even end up there. I'm going to analyze where we are now and the early part of the second round. And guys that I would love to see the Cavs take in this draft, but let's waste no more time. Let's get into it. Okay, so to the Cavaliers specifically, I think we're all sort of in a consensus as to their biggest needs. There are two specific things which I expect and or hope that they draft in this draft. I realize they only have one pick, but it's got to be one of these two things. Either a hybrid big who can space the floor, but is legitimately big enough to defend other bigs. So a 3-4, a guy with a bit of range, 
somebody with enough girth. And when I say enough girth, I don't mean a person like Amani Bates, who weighs less than me. He's 180 pounds. And yeah, six foot nine. That's fantastic. I'm not looking for somebody who is physically incapable of doing anything but gunning, not passing, and not defending. I know there's people who are high on Amani Bates. I am not, for the sole reason that he's not that athletic, that he's very isolation jump shot heavy, that he shoots horrible percentages, which concern me less at his age, but more so that we're not drafting a guy to come in and be some sort of alpha score. We're drafting somebody who can knock down catch-and-shoot threes. And that is why a few people stand out to me. Now, a man who we've heard discussed at length, Julian Strother. He's not really what I would call a 3-4. He's more of a 2-3. 6-7, 210 pounds, played a few years with Gonzaga, 21 years old, but elite in a couple categories that are very important for the Cavs. First, catch-and-shoot threes. He shot a shitload of these. 23 of his 37 games, he got up five or more looks. Now, his release, it looks a little low, but it's very fast. And he was very prolific. 43% on catch and shoot threes, knocked down 62 of them this year. Overall, a 41% three-point shooter. And while he's not a guy that anybody expects to be more than a you know a role player, a floor spacer, somebody who can be serviceable but will not become the primary guy on any team, that's perfectly fine. Because in the one area that he is truly elite, it happens to coincide with the Cavaliers' primary desires. Length and spacing. Length on the wing and spacing. Now, in a perfect world, I'm a little more inclined to go with somebody who can bang with a big. We Cast Love out in the buyout. Dean Wade regressed hard. Lamar Stevens just simply isn't that good of a three-point shooter. It would be nice to have a guy who, when we shift Mobley over to the center, we can throw him into a three-man rotation and never have to watch Robin Lopez again, not have to rely on three-point makes from Lamar Stevens, who, while I like Lamar Stevens and while I absolutely think I'd retain him at his very minimal, minimal contract, I mean, he is what he is. I'm hoping for more. So I would like to address that position. Now, Strother, as I said, more of a 2-3. But there are two guys, two Big 12 players, who both I am intrigued by. Now, Kobe Brown is a bit of a draft darling. I think he's going to go far above where the Cavaliers pick at 49. However, I do think he would be attainable in the early third. I think there's a chance. Sorry, did I say third? I meant second. I think there's a chance that the the Nuggets take him with their third pick, the 37th overall pick. So if I wanted Kobe Brown, I think the optimal goal here would be to trade up into the mid-30s. Now that still may guarantee you nothing. I could see the Spurs taking him. I could see the Nuggets grabbing him at 32. I could see the Hornets taking him with one of their many, many picks. Would I be happy with a player like him? Yes, I have my concerns, of course. But this season, he was absolutely phenomenal. 16 points, 6 boards, a very good passer, proven to be very effective in the pick and roll, a very solid passer, and a guy who, to get three assists from a man who is really kind of a 
power forward center on your team is very impressive. And here's the the stat that we've seen over and over again. 46% from three-point land. Shot 55% from inside. Very good at bullying his way to the rim. Can score over either shoulder. Very good post scorer. Very solid passer. Very good in pick and rolls. Now, obviously, the drawback is he's not exceptionally tall. And he's pretty old. He's 23 years old. He's close to a finished product, probably, at this point. That's how most people anticipate it. And the volume of three-pointers he took per game isn't huge. A lot of these other guys took a much higher volume. Strother took a much higher volume. Some of the guys that we'll mention coming up, I mean, a guy like Amani Bates, who I know many people are high on, that's a guy who took an obscene eight three-point attempts per game. Now, he only shot 33%, but we're leaving him for later, right now, on Kobe Bryant. What are my concerns? Well, the three-point shooting could be an anomaly. I mean, he shot less than 25% his first three years on the team, and then he took this massive leap. But I like so much about the rest of his game. I like his ability to find other people. I like his ability to do all the things that you would want outside of just that shooting. The spacing is what we really need. But the fact that he's able to finish over either shoulder, the fact that he's comfortable with the ball in his hands, he can find other people, those are all things. That's one of the things we love most about Mobley is that he's such an adept passer for a big man to have another guy out there who's comfortable with the ball in his hands and who could thrive off the ball because he's an intelligent player. It's a guy who, now, full disclosure, my mother-in-law is a Missouri fan. I saw a fair amount of Big 12 basketball. I like Kobe Brown. And there's other players in the Big 12 I like, including the next guy I'll speak on, and that's Keontae Johnson. Now, a lot of you remember Keontae Johnson. He is not as big as Kobe Brown. And in that way, I don't think that you're going to find that he's able to guard traditional bigs. However, he plays much bigger than his height. He's six, five and a half, six, six, but he has a gigantic wingspan, seven foot wingspan. He's 240 pounds. So this is not some feathery lightweight. This is a grown ass man who missed a huge chunk of basketball because in December of 2020, while playing for Florida, playing against the Florida State Seminoles, he collapsed on the court and was diagnosed with myocarditis, or athlete's heart. The man was in a medically induced coma for three days. That cost him, basically, two seasons. He came back. He was excellent for the Kansas State Wildcats. And here's the part that I like about him, is that he shot good from three-point land his entire career. 37% freshman year, 38% sophomore year, 43% in that tiny four games before he was out for the season and then the whole next season. And then his senior season, 41%. Now, it's minimal attempts. Only 3.2 three-point attempts per game. But off of catch-and-shoot threes, he knocked down a blistering 45.2% of those looks. That's higher than Julian Strother. A good off-ball cutter, a pretty good straight-line driver. His defense, pretty bad off the ball and not good at navigating screens. He's a bit turnover prone, but I'm not so concerned about that in the pros because he should not be handling the ball that much. We're looking for people who can fill holes. Catch and shoot threes is a huge hole for us. We need somebody who's not reliant on the ball, but can knock down the looks that he gets. And we know what kind of problem rebounding was against the New York Knicks. Deontay Johnson, for a man who's only 6'5 or 6'6, 
an incredible rebounder, averaged seven rebounds a game. So that's very good for his size. Again, I would prefer if the guy was a little bit bigger and we could isolate him on defense against power forwards, traditional NBA-sized power forwards, you know, the 6'8", 6'9", guys. That may not be what we see from him. Kobe Brown, a more versatile defender. That There is no question about that. Johnson is a worse defender, but perhaps a more reliable three-point shooter, despite that incredible 46% that Kobe Brown shot this season. And definitely a guy that you can root for just from a human interest standpoint. Plus, he went to Kansas State. Maybe he snaps Dean Wade out of his funk. Now, while we're on the subject of Big 12 players, we might as well hit the third guy. This guy is not what I would call a traditional fit. However, I like him a lot. I was at his senior night for Kansas versus Texas Tech. The man I'm talking about, Jalen Wilson. Now, this is truly a hybrid 3-4 because this is a physical man who's done a little bit of everything at Kansas. However, he doesn't possess the typical range that we're looking for in this spot. I've given it a pass. I'm willing to overlook it because I like so much about his character, about his grit, about his toughness, and just about the overall production that he has put forth for one of the best teams in college basketball. 20 points a game, 8 rebounds a game, and he's gotten consistently better every season. Now he's shot just 34% from three-point land, but that's on six attempts a game, which I think is pretty damn good. Now there's a huge chasm between when he's wide open, where he shot 40%, and when he's guarded, where he shot less than 28%, but... I've already told you, this isn't the fit guy. This is the guy who I just think is the glue guy type player. He's got a decent handle. He's too quick for big guys. He's too strong for small guys. I look at him as a higher ceiling Lamar Stevens. I think he can thrive in the overlooked guy on the court role. I never think it's a bad idea to bet on these Kansas guys. And I'm saying that because of Abaji, of Brown. Is it so ridiculous to think Jalen Wilson could be the next of those guys? All these guys I've listed, Brown, Deontay Johnson, Jalen Wilson, because they are physically mature, 23 years old, almost 23 for Jalen Wilson. These guys physically ready to play. Now, I would absolutely be happy to come away with Jalen Wilson at pick 49 if he's still there and some of the other guys are gone. Now, if we trade up, I hope that's not the target. I'm looking at Jalen more like a safety net. Another guy that I wanted to spend just a moment of time on, Hunter Tyson. 6'8", 6'9", 215 pounds, 23-year-old senior from Clemson. I don't think he's going to get drafted. But in a way, I view him a lot like I looked at Dean Wade in terms of this is a man who he would probably be my first call if he does not get drafted in the second round. And... If everybody makes a run on all the higher profile guys, the people who are a little bit higher on people's draft boards, well, then I would be happy just from a fit standpoint with Hunter Tyson. All these guys are old as hell that I'm bringing up, but if we were to bring him in as an unsigned free agent, I could very much see him having the same type of impact that we got from Dean Wade. This is a man who for Clemson averaged 15 points and 10 rebounds a game this season. 11th in the nation in double-doubles with 16 double-doubles and 41% from outside the arc. And over the course of his five seasons with Clemson, he was a 37% shooter from outside the arc. Now, this is a man who gets the ball off quick, is not just a spot-up shooter who caught some stuff in motion, who 
caught balls off screens, fired them up, shot 41% on six three-point attempts per game his senior season. He attempted 205 of them his senior year. So this isn't a man who just has a high percentage on a low volume. No, with 205 attempted in his senior year at a 41% clip, I think we can say we know what we'd get in him. He's also a deceptively good athlete, despite being some random small forward white guy for Clemson. A standing vertical of 28 and a half inches at the combine, which puts him in elite company there. And in the 34 games he played at Clemson his senior season, 26 of them he shot five or more threes in those games. So for the role we're looking for, somebody who can shore up rebounding, somebody who can at least play reasonably hard defense, and somebody who can knock down three-point shots as an undrafted free agent. I love Hunter Tyson. As a 49th pick, I can live with Hunter Tyson because I see shades of Drippy Dean, the ideal Drippy Dean. Those are the old guys. I want to touch on two young guys. Two of the, well, we're late in the second round. Let's just take a guy with promise and hope for the best. Now, one of them I've alluded to already, that's Imani Bates. One of the highest profile second round pick guys out there because this was the number one player in the class of 2022. He won the Gatorade Player of the Year Award as a sophomore. He was expected to be so great. This was a guy who was expected to leave early and be high in the first round mock dress. And then when he got to college, it just did not work out that way. Reclassified into 2021, ended up the fifth overall prospect. Do you know who the other four guys were? Jalen Duran, Chet Holmgren, Paolo Bancaro, Shaden Sharp. All first round selection. So there's still time for him to turn it around, but it is not trending in the right direction. His physical profile, it's fairly impressive. He's very tall, six foot nine. He's exceptionally good at taking jumpers. He has an array of moves as far as step backs, you know, off balance shots. He takes some bold shots. Now, if you were to look at his statistical profile for a fairly, well, how, how do I put this nicely? He could take any shot he wanted for Eastern Michigan. He certainly did. As I mentioned, almost eight three-point attempts per game. His splits are horrible. 33% from range, 41% overall. His true shooting percentage, abysmal. The concerns, and there are plenty, are there. On a pro level, he does not look supremely athletic. Doesn't appear to have a great first step. He's exceptionally light. Only 180 pounds. Yes, he's younger. He can put on weight. He's 19 and a half years old, but very right-handed dominant, takes mostly jumpers, and that includes even in the paint. Sometimes with his back to the basket, he resorts to jumpers. Now, he's had moments, including one of his better games against another guy who I'm higher on as a young, developmental, seemingly disinterested in defense prospect that I will mention next. But in a game against the South Carolina Gamecocks, Amani Bates dropped 36 points on 8 of 15 from outside the arc. A good night. On the other end, he gave up 24 points and 9 rebounds to the man that I will mention next, and that is Gigi Jackson. Now, I would take Jackson over Bates in a heartbeat if we're going to go with a developmental, high-ceiling, raw guy. Jackson played at South Carolina, 6'9", 7-foot wingspan. Now, Amani Bates does the rare negative wingspan where he's six foot nine but only a six seven wingspan gg jackson looks to have several of the physical tools that i think profile to the nba better 
than Amani Bates. Now, as a six foot nine freshman, 18 and a half years old, 215 pounds. So he's already 35 pounds heavier than Amani Bates. He has a very solid ISO game, good footwork, tight handle for a big man, very solid dribble pull up game. Took almost 150 attempts of dribble pull ups. Now, again, some of his shot selection was questionable, and that is always the case with freshmen. Guys learn, they play smarter, they play within themselves as they become upperclassmen. But this is a big with guard-type skills. He's, he has turnarounds, he has step-backs, he's got fadeaways. Now his splits, fucking terrible. 38%, 32 from three, less than 70% three-point shooter, excuse me, free-throw shooter. But as a freshman, he took over five three-point attempts per game. So he's getting them up. Again, with these guys, you have to hope that they grow into better efficiency and better shot selection. But the profile he has, I think, is so much better than Bates and that he's very good in ISO, and it's not all reliant on jump shots and fadeaways and three-point looks. No, he can get to the mid-range. He's solid coming over screens, dribble handoffs. He's got a much tighter handle, and his footwork is good. I like his dribble pull-ups. Now, I sound like a hypocrite saying I don't like the shots that Amani's taking, but the equally horribly percentage-based shooter in Gigi Jackson, I like his. It's just that I think he has a couple skills which profile better to the pros, and that's his great handle and his great footwork. Watching some of Bates's shots, they're fallaways, they're leaners, they're off-balance. They're extremely high-difficulty shots. And yeah, he makes plenty, but he also can just shoot as much as he wants at Eastern Michigan. I think Jackson has defensive engagement issues. I think he takes some suspect shots right now. But when I watch him, he looks more like an NBA player. Not just somebody playing pickup ball and heaving up ridiculous shots. Am I a scout? No. I'm some dickhead in a basement. I mean, there must have been a reason Bates was the fifth overall prospect in the class of 2021. The first in the class of 2022. There must be something there. But I want this stuff on tape. So that either you can throw it in my face later and say, Bob, what the fuck were you talking about? Look at Amani Bates. He's an all-star now. Or, well, yeah, no, he got that one right. And I'm confident enough that Gigi will exceed Amani. I mentioned Bates and him together because they put on a masterclass of terrible defense on each other when they faced off. Gigi Jackson let Bates drop 36. Bates let Gigi Jackson drop 24. Too much going under screens. Between the two of them, They knocked down 12 three-pointers in that game. So these are both very raw guys, but I wanted to hit on a bunch of the people who may be out there. Now, as I said, my hope is we trade up into the early 30s. The scouts have done their job. There's somebody that we target, and we come away with one of the guys I mentioned today or somebody who's an equally good fit a little higher up in the board if we trade up into the late first round, early second. But some of the names I'm, I'm not super high on, Kamara from Dayton, not super high on. Ricky Council, the fourth from Arkansas. No, thank you. I do like Seth Lundy. I didn't talk about him a lot, but he's a very respectable three-point shooter. Again, he's a little small, but nearly a 6'11 wingspan and shot 40% from three on over six attempts a game. That's another name to look for. He, again, though, is a guy that I kind of hope gets picked up as an undrafted free agent because I think there are people who are interesting that are in those pipeline schools that we could have a relationship with because of the proximity to Cleveland. There's Landers Nolly at Cincinnati. There's both Seth Lundy at Penn State. 
as well as Andrew Funk, who Funk, he's not a big man, but Jesus, his release is so quick. Shades of Kyle Korver looks like a very interesting three-point shooter. So there are guys in those schools who I would say don't draft them because there's a good chance that you can get them in on a camp invite if they don't go. And they're those French type of guys who may not. So let's do this thing. Draft day. I can't wait to see what else transpires. Will Dame get help? Will Zion get traded? What else is in store for us? I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, lifelong Cleveland Cavalier fan. And thank you to everybody who listened to this this whole second season, heading into the third season. I'm excited. I'm excited to see what we do in the draft, what we do in free agency with the mid-level exception, with the biannual exception. How do we round out this roster so that I don't have to hear another goddamn person talking about trading Jared Allen? Thank God Porzingis got traded because you blasphemous pieces of shit who took a full team failure and tried to pin it all on the shoulders of the namesake of the Fear the Fro podcast should be ashamed of yourselves. I hope none of you ever get drafted to anything except the military and then you're sent overseas and fucking killed. That was an aggressive ending. But come on. Lou Dort for for Jared Allen? What the fuck kind of suggestion was that? Dort can't shoot. A worse true shooting percentage than every single Cavalier, with the exception of Ricky Rubio. He's looking up the stat sheet at Lamar Stevens. And we're talking about how the Cavs lack spacing and they lack rebounding. And the solution is to trade away a double-double, almost 70 true shooting percentage center in Jared Allen for Lou fucking Dort. Here's a thought. Keep a Coro. He costs a fraction of the price and takes way less shots. Great. He's a dogged defender. Stop with the fucking one-sided players on both sides of the ball. Get well-rounded basketball players. Jared Allen for Lou Dort is the dumbest suggestion I heard in the last week. And I say that not remotely lightly. I say it aggressively. Because you know what happens when stuff like that happens? It muddies the water. For casual fans who don't actually watch the Cavs, they say, oh man, Allen must have really sucked. And we have enough of those in our own fan base, of the people who only tuned in or who only care about the five games in the playoffs where Allen pooped his pants in two of them. Questionably, three of them. We pin all the responsibility on him. That's the trend I'm seeing. Despite what happened with Mitchell and Garland not being able to make a goddamn thing from outside the arc. Despite all that, it's all fallen on Allen's shoulders somehow. And we got Simmons and Rosillo out here saying they would say no if they're the Thunder, not the team trading away an all-star center one year removed. What the fuck are people thinking? I get it. Allen was bad for a five-game sample. But we dump Allen and who's playing the four? We haven't even filled that role yet. Hopefully we will today. But also, you take away so much of what makes Evan great. Having someone behind him so he can roam, so he can get in the passing lane, so he can get the weak side blocks. Not to mention taking away a lob threat from Darius Garland. We take all the things we're lead at and we take them for granted because the best offensive rebounder in the NBA out-rebounded Jared Allen. Yeah, he disappointed me. But have some fucking patience and loyalty, you sacks of shit. We don't need to trade him to add shooting. We have other avenues to do that. We have today. We have the mid-level, taxpayer mid-level exception. We have the biannual exception. There are avenues. There's the buyout market this year. All of these things can be done without just casting away 
a one-year-removed all-star center because we're upset with his playoff performance. Efficiency and Lou Dort will never, ever be mentioned in the same sentence. And it's great. He can defend. But so can Okoro. And he's on a rookie deal. Lou Dort signed an $83 million contract. He's making almost $17 million a year. I'm sorry. I like his name, but what the fuck? He should not be discussed in the same sentence with Jared Allen. So that's enough for my tantrum. And I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to the Fear the Fro podcast. But we'll be back post-draft to talk about how right or how wrong I proved to be. Please, if you like the pod, leave a review, leave a rating wherever you listen. Apple, iHeartRadio, Spotify. Thank you. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.